south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 165, covering the week of April 15th through April 19th, 2019. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Abbeville Institute. Like our Facebook page at Abbeville Institute. And of course, subscribe to our YouTube page at Abbeville Institute. You can find all those social media buttons on our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. While you're there, give us an email address and we'll give you a free ebook. And you get our daily dose of Dixie Monday through Friday and our weekly email on Saturday or Sunday, which includes a link to this podcast. Also remember that the Abbeville Institute exists on your generous contributions alone. So while you're at abbevilleinstitute.org, at the top of the page, you'll see a button that says support. Click on that and you'll have uh, donor levels. If you go there, you can uh, see that you can donate monthly, annually, or give a one-time donation. All of that is tax-deductible to the full extent of the law. Also remember that we have our conference, our summer school, coming up in July. Um, so you want to check that out on the website. It's The topic is the New South and Reconstruction. It's going to be a great time. All the information is available there. Make sure you're getting in on that now because space is limited and time is running out to go ahead and sign up. So go on out to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org. At the middle of the page, you'll see a thing that says you're invited. Click on that link. Take you out to all the information. Contact Dr. Livingston about getting involved in the summer school. We'd love to see you there. Okay. And don't forget, one more thing, to get our web app, download our web app. Go to your app store on your mobile device, look for Abbeville Institute, get our web app, and um, download that. You get the Abbeville Institute on the go, which includes a link to this podcast every week. Also, all of our other 200-plus audio lectures. I mean, a lot of great stuff on there. So you want the app, uh, again, free of charge. Um, So go on out and get that web app. And if you do like the app or you do like the podcast, one thing I'll say, make sure you rate it. Go out to iTunes, rate the podcast, uh, rate the app, rate our products because that helps people see us and gets more people involved. All right, so let's talk about the week at the Institute. A lot of great articles this week. Um, And I want to start actually with Wednesday's article um, because Wednesday's article was published in the 1950s uh, in a book entitled The Lasting South, edited by Louis Rubin and James Jackson Kilpatrick. Um, And it was published in 1957. Of course, we're right on the eve of the Civil Rights Movement. And Louis Rubin was generally a moderate when it came to to issues. He was, for example, uh, anti-segregation. He was very critical of treatment of of black Southerners, and rightly so. Um, So he was someone who was interested in the South for what the South is and was particularly culturally. He was very interested in a solid South that way. And so I love this essay because it gets right to the heart of what's true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And here he is in 1957, already talking about things um, that we're looking at today. I mean, in 1957, we're only 27 years removed from I'll Take My Stand. We hadn't gotten to the point where we are here, here you know, what, 60 years later, where all of the things that the 12 Southerners talked about, and I'll take my stand, have come to fruition. He was seeing them again 27 years later and saying, oh my gosh, everything they're talking about, it's, it's happening, and we need to do something about that. And I love certain sections of this essay because he brings out what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. What are we trying to do? 
What is the Abbeville Institute trying to do in having this podcast and our articles and everything else? What is it we're trying to preserve? What is it we're trying to explore? What are the things that are true and valuable? And so I want to read a little bit of the beginning of the essay and then some from the end of the essay because, I mean, the essay is wonderful. It's, it's, a, it's a chapter in the book and um, just a, a great, uh, a great uh, introductory essay to the book. Um, but he says this, quote, Southerners, except perhaps some North Carolinians and most Texans, are usually unwilling to admit this. Even today, they will stand in front of a sleek plate glass store window or a gaudy motel, and they will talk about a Southern way of life. And by that, they will mean a kind of relaxed, easygoing acceptance of things, with plenty of time for leisure and with considerable family and social ties. And despite the fancy window displays and the motels, they are generally correct. There is a Southern way, a style of its own, and though the motor court and chambers of Congress and the hundreds of new industrial installations seem to belial it, the way of life still hangs on. It is an exacerbating way of life at times, especially when there is work to be done, and yet it is the best thing about the South. And in the long run, it counts for more than all the economic expansion so talked about today. The Southern way of life is now being threatened, as it has not been threatened since the Civil War. I am now, not now talking about segregation or integration or creeping socialism or anything so topical as that. I am talking about the quality which makes a region a region, instead of a colorless, standardized set of people and places. The South is in danger today of losing its most precious possession, that regional quality, and the enemy is just as much within as without. So subtle is that enemy, and so apparently neutral and inevitable, that it is mostly not even recognized for being an enemy. Instead, it is being greeted with enthusiasm by the very people who should be most suspicious of it. Think about that. those two paragraphs for a second, or three paragraphs. Two paragraphs, sorry, two paragraphs. Think about those two paragraphs. When you drive up and down the road, and I live in, a, in an area that um, you wouldn't confuse for the South at times because of all the outside influence in it. All of our restaurants are chain, are chain restaurants. All of our stores are chain stores. There's very few. There's very little local character to where I live. And you're seeing this now all over the South. And Southerners like this stuff. I mean, it's just like you're saying. They can stand in front of a motel or a plate glass window and say, yes, that's what I like about the South. But they've lost that regional character, that local character. As I say in my own podcast, they've lost the think locally, act locally attitude. They're not, uh, they're not provincial anymore. Certainly, they still have the accent, and you can find it. Though, I, as I've discussed in, in an essay a couple of weeks ago, that's even disappearing. Uh, there was a concerted effort at times to minimize that accent, that regional accent. Of course, there's a, there's a North Carolina accent, there's an Alabama accent, there's a, there's a Georgia accent, there's a Mississippi accent, there's a Tennessee accent, a Florida accent. You find it everywhere. Eastern Shore, Virginia, you find the accent everywhere, everywhere in the South, Texas. And we know there's, of course, regional accents in other places. You go to Minnesota or the Dakotas or New England, we know these accents exist. But this assault on, on regional culture, the one America ideal, American nationalism, is now almost complete. 
And of course, that goes all the way back to the founding period. Nationalism has always been the enemy of regionalism. It's something that the Southern, 12 Southerners were talking about, and I'll take my stand. And you can take a variety of issues. People often have a laser beam focus on race, which um, is by design, as one of the pieces we, we have this week talks about, because it masks what is really going on. It masks a larger agenda, which is the radical transformation of American society and the ultimate assault on Western civilization. It masks that because it makes it, it, it is a way to get people to buy into that because nobody wants to be labeled an ugly term, right? So if you label people these ugly terms, then they're willing to say, well, I, I don't want to be that, so I'll just go along with what you're saying. It's, it's beautiful psychological warfare. But regardless of that, we have a South that in 1957, as Rubin talks about here, and again, Louis Rubin, a, a progressive Southerner in a lot of ways, I mean, a liberal and, and, uh, on many issues, um, but there's, there's a South that's under assault and nobody even recognizes it as they go to the McDonald's to eat their breakfast uh, biscuit or the Hardee's to eat their breakfast, breakfast biscuit. And we, I mean, look, I love Hardee's breakfast biscuits. We love these things. But we lose that regional character. We lose the identity of the South. And, of course, symbols are part of this. I mean, for a long time, you saw the Confederate flag. It was a symbol of the South. It wasn't to most people that had that symbol. It wasn't a symbol of any type of racism. It was a symbol of the South. It was, there's the flag, there's Dixie. You know you're in Dixie. Oh, there's the Confederate flag. You know you're in Dixie. Or using that term Dixie or hearing Dixie. Uh, uh, Don Livingston told me that it used to be when you uh, were flying on Delta Airlines and you crossed over the Mason-Dixon in the air. As you're getting ready to land, they start playing Dixie over the air. Because here you are. You're in Dixie. It's a place. It's somewhere different. Now you can't even identify with that. It just has to be, ah, we're in uh, South Carolina. Let's pick on it. Uh, we're in Alabama. Let's talk about how these people are hayseeds. They're backwards. They're stupid. Uh, they marry their cousins at 14 years old. So the image of the South has been tainted, of course, by Southerners' own actions at times. I mean, this, this, is, this is not to say that Southerners don't do some of the things that they're stereotyped for doing. Uh, but regardless, there is a South, and that leisurely lifestyle um, was something that Southerners thought they would always have, and maybe they do, maybe they don't. Um, but still, Reuben is saying, it's, it's the enemies within us. It's not just from without. It's not just Northerners coming in. It's what Southerners are willing to accept. Um, so it's a, it's a wonderful introduction to what he's going to talk about in this essay. And he gives you examples of how the South is different from the North, how the South is unique. It goes through community and family and economy and people in place. I mean, these things matter. Um, as I've talked about in other, other podcasts and essays, very few people were singing odes to northern states or regions, but they certainly did in the South because there was something to it. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. Um, so I, I, when he gets into the end of this essay, um, he says this. To do this is difficult. 
and of course he's he's thinking about ways to adjust to modernity. It is also most unsouthern. It may be that it will be prove impossible to do. It may be that the very qualities which have made Southern life what it is contain in this age of greater and greater urbanization the seeds of their own destruction. But if the South believes in its traditional way of life, and if it wishes to preserve in American life a region where the individual, the historical, and the spiritual are cherished over the mass, the moment, and the material, it must rise to the occasion. At mid-century, the South faces its greatest challenge. So think about that last sentence. If the South believes in its traditional way of life, and if it wishes to preserve in American life a region where the individual, the historical, and the spiritual are cherished over the mass, the moment, and the material, it must rise to the occasion. Now think about what he's saying if you just take that to Confederate symbols or monuments. That is cherishing. Monuments, if you are in favor of monuments, you are cherishing the individual, the historical, and the spiritual over the mass and the moment. The, the, the moment is tearing these things down because they, they supposedly offend somebody. That's the moment. The mass, the mob. The mob mentality is what's going after these monuments. For a variety of reasons. It's the mob. And of course, a lot of this is coming from within the South itself. The South has adopted a northern worldview. It is north over south. It is Yankee imperialism. That's what's happened in the South. When people, I think Southerners at times, even fail to realize this. They think that, well, we can just have an independent South. The enemy is, as Louis Rubin is talking about here, is within us. I'm not so certain that would even solve anything anymore. The enemy is bigger than that. It's a worldview that's anti-Southern. From the South itself, from the South itself, and coming in from other parts of the United States. That's where the enemy is. This is why what we do at the Institute is so important. It's a reminder of what is true and valuable in the Southern tradition. And Rubin hits the nail on the head in this essay. It's wonderful. And eventually we'll publish more essays out of this book. The book is uh, in the public domain now. It's, it's uh, not in copyright any longer. So uh, we'll publish more of the essays out of this book. It's a, it's a wonderful uh, essay and treatise on, um, on what the South is. And what's at stake here and where the, where the focus should be on community, on people, on place, all these things, the symbols, the symbols represented that. So when the symbols come down, those other things can still exist. You can take away all the symbols, but as long as those other things still exist, the South, the South still exists. Now, I think at some point when you look at Irish history and that they took down the green flag and did things, they still wrote songs. They still held on to who they were, and eventually all those things came back. They were resurrected. But it just took time. So when I mentioned uh, in this particular, I mentioned the, the piece, the, uh, and it's Boyd Cathy's piece, Critical Race Theory and the Verdict of R.L. Dabney, where he says that we should listen to Calhoun and Dabney over uh, the modern, uh, over John Dewey and Abraham Lincoln. And he's talking about this, uh, what he's really getting into, of course, is a, is a Yankee type of imperialism, a one-people ideology that uh, Rubin's talking about. 
because the South, Dabney and Calhoun, had a unique perspective on things. Calhoun, as I said on Wednesday, is the last great American statesman. And I, and I quote Clyde Wilson for that. Um, but when you look at what Calhoun or Dabney had to say about society and what they were worried about in the post-war or antebellum period, they were talking about the radical transformation of America. Tearing down Calhoun, as I say, is tearing down America. And of course, Cal the Calhoun statue is under assault. Thomas Jefferson is under assault at Hofstra. Uh, the, the assault on traditional America is not going to stop with the low-hanging fruit of Confederate statues, which are, I mean, they're being attacked all over the place. They're coming down. The war memorial's coming down in Dallas. I mean, they're, they're coming down. It's, uh, what, what these people really don't like is not the statue. The statue is an inanimate object. It doesn't do anything to anybody. What they really don't like is traditional America. And so they're going to use things like critical race theory, which Boyd Cathy talks about quite eloquently, and what it actually is and how it's infested the academy. And so everyone that goes through the academy, whether it's from, you know, your, even in your lower schools, all the way through college, they get hammered with this stuff. And so because of that, they look at the world differently. It is a it is a attack, an attack on Western civilization. And so, you know, we had the Cathedral of Notre Dame burned down. Um, parts of, well, thankfully it's still there, but of course it's in trouble structurally. Uh, but people were weeping over that, traditionalists, because that represents Western civilization. And so does the South. Europeans recognize this, that the South represented traditional Western civilization. And so this is why we try to hang on to it. This is what Paul Gottfried's talking about in his review of um, Writing on the Southern Front by uh, Joseph Scotchy, who's uh, uh, Authentic Conservatism for Our Times. And uh, Joe Scotchy uh, has written a number of really good books. Um, and he says, look, I mean, the South represents that traditional American conservatism. It's why Paul Gottfried, if you ask him, he'll say, I really like the South. Because, and, and Boyd Cathy talks about this, I mean, it's, it's, it's the representative in America of the anti-Lincoln, right? I mean, Lincoln's, uh, the proposition nation, uh, which is the neoconservative position. The South represents the other, the authentic other of American society, of Western civilization. And so when you look at these pieces, you look at, for example, let's take, uh, let's take Boyd Cathy's piece. And at the end of the piece, um, he, he says this, quote, 140 years ago, the great Southern theologian and polemist Robert Louis Dabney debated the first Virginia superintendent of public education, William Ruffner, over public state-run education. Provident social laws and parental virtues and efforts do inevitably legislate in favor of some classes of boys, he declared. If the state undertakes to countervail that legislation of nature by leveling action, the attempt is wicked, mischievous, and futile. Dabney understood that there could be no such thing as secular or value-free education. The liberal ideal was flawed fatally from its inception. There can be no true education, Dabney insisted, without moral culture, and no true moral culture without Christianity. If the non-juring state replaced the parent and church as primary purveyor of education, it would undermine the founder's vision of the old republic and leave our educational institutions open to aggressive ideology. It's a wonderful paragraph. Dabney was not, Dabney was so deep in what he was looking at here, and it wasn't just uh, uh, 
the social issues of the day, but he was looking deeper than that at all the things that could be coming because of what he's talking about, state-run education, uh, which is John Dewey, eventually. Um, he's talking about removing, it's, it's making everything secular, removing any religion from education, which was dangerous in his mind, because it wasn't going to be an assault on Western civilization. It was going to open the doors to all of the radical ideology that's now taking... Uh, taking place in higher education that's masquerading as education, but really just indoctrination. All this stuff is just indoctrination. It's, it's not really education. It's not critical thinking. It's simply trying to get people to think like you. And there's a reason that these people want to do that. It's because they are so, um, so stuck on themselves and they feel so threatened all the time in their own inferiority that they have to go around. And, and I'm saying this to leftists, they have to go around uh, trying to make everyone think like them so that they don't ever feel that way anymore. If somebody is threatening them in some way, which isn't ever really the case. Um, but regardless, uh, that's something to do. It's their, it's their own insecurities that lead to uh, the, the attempt to push on others. It's not about tradition or a traditional way of life or just talking about things that are. It's talking about things that could be. It's, it's the progressive worldview. Um, so Boyd uh, concludes, In short, our politicians and leaders should be reading and quoting John C. Calhoun and Robert Louis Dabney and avoiding the high-flying egalitarian rhetoric of Abraham Lincoln or the educational nonsense of John Dewey. The alternate is the end of our culture, end of our civilization. So this is... Uh, this is exactly what Rubin was talking about. I mean, we're forgetting who we are. This is why Mel Bradford said we have to remember who we are. We're forgetting who we are in the South. Southerners are forgetting what they are and who they are and, and what the South actually represents. And this is what uh, Dr. Gottfried is talking about in his piece, Recovering Authentic Conservatism. Um And so... He is, uh, he is bringing up the fact that what we have in the South is the counterweight to all of the restructuring in American society that's taking place. The South represents that. You take down those symbols, you take down what the South is, and you remove any of that opposition. I remember uh, several months ago, over a year ago, I wrote a piece. Uh, there was a, uh, In Time magazine, there was a, a piece about taking down, uh, removing the State of Maryland song. And the reason was, as this person said, um, it's, it's dissidence. It's dissidence. Because it's, it flies in the face of the one nation, indivisible idea of American society, of a, of a one American people. It flies in the face of that. And so because it's dissidence, it has to go. And so this is what, you know, when, I, when I bring up Calhoun on, on Thursday, I, I wrote a little, little thing on Calhoun. Um, some of the things Calhoun said about American political life, I mean, anyone in America would, would agree with these things. People on the left, people on the right. But of course, he's tainted as simply just the cast iron man or the defender of slavery or the man who started the Civil War. This is unfair to Calhoun uh, because not long ago, John F. Kennedy said Calhoun was one of the greatest senators in American history. Uh, the, his, own, his own adversaries in the Senate uh, loved Calhoun. He was one of the most important Americans. His, his grave is actually visited more than any other vice presidential grave. It's in Charleston, South Carolina. 
And people from all over the world study Calhoun because they can separate what Calhoun said about slavery, which actually wasn't even original or unique, from what he said about government and society. Um, he says things like, quote, the constitutional power of the president never was or could be formidable unless it was accompanied by a Congress which was, which was prepared to corrupt the Constitution. So when you look at, I mean, everybody's going nuts right now over what's happening with the Trump administration. You just had the Mueller report release. And the only reason all that stuff exists is because the Congress kept punting its responsibility all the time. This is Calhoun's position. He says, quote, the presidential election is no longer a struggle for great principles, but only a great struggle as to who shall have the spoils of office. This is 100% true. It's all about power. That's what it's all about. Uh, Lindsey Graham, for all of his faults, brought this up when you had the Kavanaugh hearings. He said, look, you people, he's pointing to the other side, are so interested in power, you'll tear down anything just to have power. You see, all the stuff we have, everything that goes on in society, all of the attacks that on the surface seem to be legitimate, whether it's critical race theory or you know whatever, whatever a philosophy, whatever ideology you want to, to, to talk about, particularly from the left, it's all masquerading the one simple fact of what they want, and that is power. Um, when you look at the things that they do and how they structure their arguments, it all hides, it masquerades as something noble, but really it's all about power being able to control other people. That's what it's all about. And so at the end of the day, this is what Calhoun is saying. The presidency is not really about principles or ideas. It's about power, being able to influence and being able to uh, wield your authority on other people and, and, and ab essentially abuse the other side. And so while Trump is going out and he's, he's making the, the other side look silly, and of course, if you're, if you're on that side of the political spectrum, you love that. At the end of the day, it's very dangerous because Trump's only going to be there for uh, you know another couple of years and then maybe another term. And so what happens then? What happens then? Is the other side going to have retribution? Of course, because it's all about power. So the point is to get rid of that power. Uh, Calhoun also said this, the federal government is no longer under the control of the people, but of a combination of active politicians who are banded together under the name of Democrats or Whigs, and whose exclusive object is to obtain the control of the honors and emoluments of the government. They have the control of almost the entire press of the country and constitute a vast majority of Congress. With them, a regard for principle or this or that line of policy is a mere pretext. They are perfectly indifferent to either, and their whole effort is to make up on both sides such issues as they may think for the time to be the most popular regardless of truth or consequences. Now think of that stinging indictment. He's indicting not only the political parties, but also the press. Think of where we are today. Think of fake news and everything we talk about. This is what's going on. He's saying this in the antebellum period. And yet Calhoun is just the cast iron man, the defender of slavery. Everyone should stand up and say Calhoun's a great American for what he said. These are things that anyone, I don't care if you're a Democrat, a Republican, independent, left, right, you could hang your hat on what he just said there. Yeah, they're just controlling. They're trying to control the narrative. Now, if you're trying to control the narrative, you're not going to like that. And I think the left would generally be more uh, critical of this particular position because, oh, no, 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 we don't do that. Of course they do. The mainstream media is in their pocket, right? So 
this is where, and the technology companies, everything else, this is where, I mean, Calhoun is so prophetic. And why we should listen to Calhoun and Dabney and not Lincoln. And the last piece of the week gets into that. Don't be conned or don't get conned by the neocons. It's a piece that goes after uh, this um, Lincolnian vision of America, the Hamiltonian vision of America, which is at odds with the founding. It really is. I mean, when people say Abraham Lincoln is a continuation of the founding generation, they're completely mistaken. Now, uh, Richard Weaver was complimentary of Lincoln when he talked about how Lincoln could have been the savior of the South during Reconstruction had he not been killed in April of 1865, or right near that, that anniversary of that, just a few days ago. Um, and uh, there's certainly, uh, Paul Escott points this out, that Lincoln was probably trying to create some type of conservative, moderate, moderately conservative party that would have marginalized the radicals and, of course, brought in some Southerners, people like Alexander H. Stevens, and that would have been different. It would have been a reconciliationist position, and the and Reconstruction would have been different, and perhaps America would have been different moving forward. But regardless, Lincoln wrecked everything. I mean, this is the idea, you got to wreck it and then rebuild it. Um, so when we look at the Hamilton, and this is, this is Hillsdale College, and, and the Victor Davis Hanson, and Dinesh D'Souza, and Jonah Goldberg, and all these people, um, this is what they, this is how they, they, they structure things. Um, essentially, it's the left, and as I talk about in my course on Reconstruction at McClanahan Academy, go out and get that class, by the way, McClanahan Academy. The, the left and the neocons are, are saying the same thing. The neocons are critical of the South because they think it's the anti-Republican other, which is simply not true. I mean, Calhoun was a Republican, lowercase r, his entire political career. So they don't really know what they're talking about there, but not just that. Um, that that section of the United States has always been the problem. If this good Yankees had, had been you know running everything, everything would have been better in America. What they don't realize is they're undermining their own position. Because as we've just talked about this entire podcast, the South represents something unique and significant and important in America. It's what Lewis Rubin said, who was, again, a moderate. It's what we say. There is something true and valuable in that Southern tradition, whether it's culturally, whether it's uh, politically, whether it's economically. There's something there. There's something that made that South, the South, unique. And, of course, every tradition, as I've said, has its, every, every rose has its thorn and every tradition has its thorns. Uh, but we're trying to pull the flower from it and say, we don't cut down the rose bush because it's got thorns. You try to smell the flowers and say, this is the beautiful thing about it. The South is America. I've said this over and over again. The real America that people that people really do like is the South. Um, even if the South is being corrupted and, and distorted and everything else to this day and what we have, it's different. But the Southern tradition is what people have always liked about America. Um, I'll never forget when I was uh, just the last thing I was in a, a, a old bookstore, an old bookstore uh, several months ago and uh, looking at uh, they had some old records there and there was a Seals and Crofts album and it was the title of the album was Taking It Easy. And where were they? On a southern plantation. They were taking it easy. You see, this is the 1970s. Uh, it was still OK to say that the South was represented taking it easy. Um, and that was that was good. That was nice. And people still, when they think of, what's leisure in America? Well, it's sitting at the plantation. That's leisure. Sitting in the country or at the beach 
Um, but uh, more accurately, it's that uh, moonlight and magnolia view of that romantic view of the South. That's what taking it easy is all about. It's leisure. So the South ha always had that. And um, it's, it's, um, it's important to remember that. Until next time, good day. Good day.